Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. The title of my message today is Golden Birthday. Golden Birthday. Uh, I wonder if you have ever had an experience before where, whether it was your birthday or Christmas or an anniversary or some special occasion, where someone got you a gift and you didn't know what it was yet, but they were really excited about it. And uh, they, they sort of paused whatever event was happening and they were like, here, I have this for you. And they gave it to you and it was all wrapped up and they're like, and you're like, thank you. And you set it aside, right? I, I never know if I'm supposed to open the gift then or wait till later. And I don't know if anybody else has this problem, but they're just like, open it now. I want to see your reaction. And you're like, I, that's okay. I don't have to. And they're like, no, go. And then everyone's like, oh, we're opening gifts. And everyone gathers around and they're all staring at you. And you're like, okay. And they're just like, You know, they're so excited to see what this thing is going to be. And so you slowly open the gift and you get it open and you pull it out and you see what it is. And it is terrible. It's horrible. You don't want this thing. And, and yet everybody's looking at you, right? And you're looking around at all the people that are like looking at how you're going to react. And they're like, huh, huh, huh. They're all excited and you don't want to crush their soul, right? So you, you lie with facial expressions and you're just like, oh, and you try and come up with something that's not a lie, but that's still kind of positive. You're like, well, this is unexpected, Oh, wow. This is, oh man, what am I going to do with this? And you're just, you're trying to come up with things and they're like, right, right, right. And they're so excited and it's awkward for you and you're uncomfortable. And, and, and so you're just like, and then the rest of the evening, they're just like, man, right, right. That gift, huh? And you're like, oh yeah, yeah. And now you have this weird lie between you and this person It's even worse if they're like, now they think you love that thing. And so then they get you a version of that every single year. Oh man, I know how much you're into walruses. (laughs) And you're like, I've never been into walruses. But in 1998, you got me a gift I didn't want and I faked like I liked it. And now I'm trapped in this weird cycle with you. And I keep getting this thing that I don't care about, that I don't want, that's so frustrating. And I wonder if this has ever happened to you before. Like whatever that thing is that somebody got you, like to you, it was just, it was ugly. It was uncomfortable, right? It was upsetting. And the more you thought about the gift, the more like frustrated you became. And, you know, it, that's awkward. It's, it's, it's disorienting because you understand that feeling frustrated by a gift is, I mean, it's a little bit absurd because someone thought about you they spent money on you. They took time to try and do something nice for you. And although you know all this, there's still part of you on the inside that's just like, you know what it would have been better? Not getting anything than getting this thing from you right here. Why, why is that? I, I think the, the reason that we feel this way in these moments is because we realize that the, the gift that they got you makes it obvious they don't get you. For some of you husbands that have been confused every year on your wife's birthday, this is why she's mad, 
right? Because the gift you got her to her makes it obvious you don't really get her, right? You don't really understand her. You don't really know her. And this is more insulting the closer we think or expect to feel to the person giving us gifts. And this is infuriating to those of us that are just horrible gift givers, no matter how much we love someone, right? It feels like a trap every single year. And, you know, the reason we think this is because gifts really do give us some level of insight into uh, the way the, the gift giver sees you. Like, think about the things that people say when they give you a gift. Often they say things like, oh, man, this reminded me of you. Like, that, you know, this is so you. I just knew you would love this. When I saw this in the store, you were the first and only person I thought of. And so whatever it was, when they gave you that thing that you didn't want and then said one of these catchphrases, you were like, man, you don't know me at all. Are, are we even close? Did I marry the wrong person? But you're 40 years in, you know what I mean? And so it's a weird question to be asking at that stage. And the, and the reason a heartfelt present can feel like a horrible put down is that we wanna be known and accepted for who we really are. And some gifts reveal this person has no clue who I am. Now, in reality, you know, Christmas is a big gift-giving time, and, and gifts aren't the meaning of Christmas. Um, but gifts, uh, you know, every gift, it does convey some sort of a meaning, right? There's something that matters about it. And when we get given a gift, we can't help but wonder, like, what does the gift you gave me say about the way you see me? We, we find ourselves sort of analyzing, like, what does this say about our relationship, about the kind of person that you think I am, about the connection that you believe that we have or that maybe you want to have? And I bring this up because there is this scene in the Christmas story where Magi travel from the east and they present to Jesus three very specific gifts. And I, I wonder if you've ever wondered, why those gifts? Why do they give him those things? Like, what's their significance? What are those things communicating? What can maybe the presenting of these three things and the inclusion of those things in this story tell us about the way these people saw Jesus? There's only one place in Scripture where the account of the Magi is actually recorded. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, there's only two accounts in Scripture uh, from the biographies of Jesus in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where the story of Jesus is told, Luke and Matthew, and only Matthew includes this piece of the story. And he could have just wrote like, and then some people showed up and they gave Jesus some gifts and just moved on. But he doesn't do that. He takes time to sort of slow down and specifically mention each one. And you know, I really believe that every detail that's included in Scripture is there on purpose and for a purpose. And, and so I wonder why. Like, could it, believe, it be that Matthew actually believes that, that these three gifts imply something important about the identity of this baby? And that's the thing that we want to wrestle with during this series is as, as we dissect these three gifts and place them in their cultural context and talk about like, what, what is the significance of these things? And what do they mean then? And then what does that mean to us now? So I want to read you the section of this story from the book of Matthew. It's in Matthew chapter two, and we're going to start in verse one 
And this is what it says. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. And about that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we've come to worship him. This is the beginning of the story of the wise men. In fact, maybe you're confused because these, these characters have all different sorts of, of nicknames. Um, the word that's used in all of the original text is, is magi, which is probably what I'm going to refer to them during the series. But, you know, sometimes they're called kings. Sometimes we think of them as astrologers. Sometimes we think of them as wise men. Sometimes they're actually nicknamed magicians, which is interesting and, and kind of fun if you're into that sort of thing. Like they're just doing tricks, you know. And, but the reason why uh, all these different names are utilized is because we don't, really don't know exactly who they were or like what, where they were from or any of that sort of stuff. The word magi actually means mysterious. And so when the word is used, it's like basically in the text, it's like these mysterious people showed up, which is interesting. The, the literal Greek translation, which is the language that this is written in, um, it literally is magical people from the East, which is a way more fun way to think about it magical people from the East showed up, and this is what happened. What we do know from scriptural and historical accounts of Magi is that they usually possessed unique wisdom and insight. Um, they, they, they almost were always found near people of positional or powerful authority, and they were often leveraged to interpret complex situations and give sound advice. And so there's all these occasions where magi are near a ruler and they are there to sort of consult or help solve problems or give wisdom. And so the beginning of their story is that they go to Jerusalem, which is the, the capital of the, the Judean government, and they ask for the newborn king of the Jews. So they show up and ask the current king, where the new king is. But it's actually, it's, it's even way more offensive than that um, because the current king of the Jews, Herod, isn't technically Jewish, which was something that frustrated everyone. Like he wasn't the born king. He was the appointed king by the Romans who sort of ran the known world at that time. And the Jewish people hated the Romans and the Romans assigned a non-Jew to be the king of the Jews. And they hated this guy. So it was kind of a sore spot for everyone. And then these outsiders, these mysterious people show up and they just sort of waltz into the scene and they ask the one question that everyone knows you do not ask this person. You've got those things in your family, right? Where it's like everyone in the family knows you don't bring up this subject around grandma, right? You don't say that certain thing around dad. And there's always somebody, somebody's friend or boyfriend that comes in is like, and they just, they're kind of looking around and they ask what seems like an obvious question and everyone's like, oh God, you just ruined Christmas. Thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. And that's sort of what happens in this moment. They show up and they're like, where's the real king? And the actual king is not really pleased with this. In fact, the very next verse says this, Matthew chapter 2, verse 3. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. Now the question is, why? Like, why is he disturbed? And the real reason that Herod is disturbed is that 
you know, he wanted to be in control, right? He enjoyed being king. He wanted to stay king for as long as he could. The reason that everyone else who lives around him is disturbed is because they understand that Herod will do pretty much anything to be in control. And that is frightening, When you have someone that's just like, I want to be in control at all costs, and everyone around them is just like, they're not kidding. We've seen how crazy it can get. And so they're all disturbed. Now, I wonder, uh, you know, probably some of you are wondering, like, define anything. What do you mean when you talk about that? Herod basically stayed in power through ruthless violence, sort of massacring and murdering his way into power. Uh, One well-known historian wrote about the the time that he was king, that Herod was determined to leave none of his opponents alive. Masses were butchered in the streets, crowded together in houses with no mercy shown to infants or the old or the weak or female. And who were these people that were being massacred? Jews! So the king of the Jews got to be the king of the Jews by murdering a bunch of Jews. Some of you are like, weird. Why did they hate him so much? That's so bizarre. This guy was disturbed on many levels. I mean, like, he, he would, you know, have anyone killed that challenged or questioned anything that he wanted to do. It wasn't even that they opposed him. It was just like, if, if they asked questions about, like, why do you want to do that? He'd be like, you know what, we need to get rid of them. That's just the way he was. In fact, there's this legend that he would dress in peasant clothes and rub dirt on his face, and he would sneak around the marketplace and just eavesdrop on people's conversations. And if he heard someone say what could be considered or interpreted a negative word about his rule or reign, he would give their description to someone in his secret police, and they would go and kill their whole family and burn their house down. Also, he didn't really have a picture of these people. He was just giving it a description. Like, it was a Middle Eastern guy with a beard. And they're like, okay, we'll try and find him. So they're probably actually killing people that just look like the guy, but aren't the actual guy, just for saying something negative about Herod. During his lifetime, he had uh, 11 wives and 43 kids. It sounds impressive. Like, man, he was a lover. There's not really much evidence that he was in love with any of them except for one, and he definitely killed her. In fact, he got suspicious of and killed most of his family during his lifetime. There's one story in particular that has always just like, just chilled me to my core and thinking about who this person is, um, where he became suspicious that one of his sons, who's like a teenager at the time, was plotting against him and, and wanting to overthrow him. And so there was this massive banquet that was being thrown, and there was a huge pool in the middle of where the banquet was happening. And the, the son that he was suspicious of was actually out sort of swimming in the pool. And so he had uh, one of his secret police go out into the pool and question him in front of everyone. Now, everyone at this party gets real quiet. 
And they're all staring out at what's going on as these guards are holding this boy and saying, like, tell us the plot, what's going on. And they're essentially like exacting water torture and they keep dunking him underwater and he's pleading, he's screaming, he's looking out at his dad and pleading for his life. And Herod is watching as is everyone in this party. And Herod gives the nod and they drowned this kid in front of everyone at the party. And then they continue the party as his body floats in the pool. As a reminder from Herod, don't ever even think about crossing me. So he's a rough kind of dad, um, not the best. Even more harsh is that he later discovered that the boy was completely innocent. That it was all just in his mind. That he was suspicious for no reason. So people were disturbed because it was disturbing to think about what this really disturbed King Herod would do if someone threatened his kingship. And that's what felt like was happening right now. The story goes on, Matthew chapter two, verse four. Herod called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, that's what the prophet wrote. And then Herod called for a meeting with the wise men and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. And then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so I can go worship him too. And everyone like in that private conversation is just like, you may be interested in where he is, but I don't know that it's that you want to worship him (laughs) because we just met you and we can tell that you're disturbed. So I don't know, this is feeling unsafe for him and us. It goes on in verse nine to say, after this interview, the wise men went their way and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. And they entered the house and they saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. And then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This is where we come to these three famous gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And as you're thinking about these three things, you're just like, I, I mean, I know about what gold is. The other two are just like, are, you don't have any clue unless your wife like mine is really into essential oils. And then you're just like, I think it does something. I feel like there's been some sort of thing that she's used that for. But even though like we're familiar with gold, Um, You know, unlike now where pretty much all of us have, uh, you know, some piece of gold, right? Even if it's just like uh, a wedding band or an earring or a necklace with a little cross on it, like a lot of us have one item of gold. It's not unusual for a household to have a few particular items of gold. During this time in history, this wasn't really the case. In fact, most gold belonged to kings and governments, And this is the thing that I want you to understand about this gift in particular. Presenting Jesus with gold was a way of proclaiming him king. And of course, they're aware of this. The people hearing the story are aware of this. This is what's happening. Now, there are some gifts that can mean a lot of different things, but then there are other gifts that primarily just mean one thing, right? And we all understand this to be true. Like, I'll give you an example. Ladies, if there's a guy that you've been dating for a while and he decides to get you a gift and he gives you this gift by getting down on one knee and presenting you the gift of a diamond ring, no one in here is confused about what this gift means. 
None of us are like, I wonder what he's getting at. What is this about? Does he like me? What's happening, right? If you're like my wife, when, when I did this, she, uh, I was down on one knee. I was like, will you marry me? And we were on this bridge. It was like snow was falling. And she snatched up the ring and she ran off the bridge where there was better lighting. And she was like holding it up in the light. And I was just kneeling in the middle of the bridge. And I'm like, are, are we good? Is this a yes? And she's like, I'll let you know when I check out the, the color, the cut, the clarity. You know, she's like, I got to get all the season. And gold is this sort of a gift that it's the gift that really only conveys one thing, especially when it's given by magi to someone in particular that they believe might be the king. And as they give their gold, the translation we're reading says they bowed and worshiped him. Other translations say they bowed to honor him or pay homage to him, which um, you know, to me, seems maybe a, a bit more likely because these guys are coming from somewhere else. And I imagine that at the, this is the first time they're encountering this kid who's a, a, like a baby, right? And I, I'm not sure if they are quite sure if he's God, but they, they are convinced that there's something significant about him. They're strangely drawn to him. There's something that compels them to seek him and honor him and even sacrifice for him. And I think like for a lot of us, when we first really start getting to know and understand who Jesus really is, like not a caricature of him that was maybe presented to us when we were kids, but when we start really understanding and unpacking who the real Jesus really is, I feel like a lot of us, we are we respond in the same sort of way. We're, we're drawn in by the way he taught and the way he spoke and lived and sacrificed and we, we tiptoe toward him. Sort of in our own time, we look on in awe and we are compelled to lean in and learn more and maybe even lay something of ourselves down in his presence. It's sort of the power that Jesus has and has always had in people's lives. And so what we see is there are two really different reactions in this piece of the story to seeing Jesus as king. The Magi are filled with wonder and Herod is filled with terror. The Magi are delighted and Herod is disturbed. Why? Why the different reactions? I think it's because the Magi don't really want to rule this region, but Herod does. And there's something about kingship that maybe uh, you could intuit, but maybe haven't thought much about. Two kings can't rule at once. That's not the way it works. Kings don't share real well. Only one can ascend the throne. Only one is able to unconditionally assert their will. Only one gets the ultimate say. Only one is fully in charge. Only one is actually in control. And that's why Herod's disturbed, because he doesn't want to give up control. And I know it's easy to look back through the halls of history and just think like, what an egomaniac. And you'd be right. But if you stop and think for a minute, isn't this the same issue that all of us have with Jesus? That acknowledging that he is the king means that I have to stop acting as if I'm the king. And I don't like that. I think all of us, whether we realize it or not, 
have a little King Herod inside of us where we want to be in charge. We want to be in control. We want to call the shots. And as soon as Jesus enters the picture, we realize what we may have to lay down and let go of in order to really honor the true king. And that's uncomfortable. I wonder if you've ever noticed how much king and and kingdom imagery there is in the Jesus story. I think we often miss it because we don't live in a monarchy. But the original audience did. And so they, when they were listening to uh, these gospel stories be told or listening to Jesus talk, instantly their ears would have perked up and been like, that's, that's kingdom language. That's kingly talk. I want to read you just some examples that are pointing to the kingship of Jesus when Jesus grows up and he begins teaching that maybe you didn't realize what was actually being said here. Like there's a moment where Jesus says, if you want to be my follower, you must give up your own way take up your cross and follow me. That's something a king would say to his subjects. Like, listen, you are gonna have to give up your way and do things my way because I'm the king and you are not. There's another place where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray, and he prays this to God, his Father. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. In other words, he's telling them, listen, you are going to want to regularly ask God to remind you that he's the king, not you. You're gonna be tempted regularly to believe that you are the king of the world that the world revolves around you, that you are the one that calls the shots. And if you actually want to live life to the full, you're gonna need God's help to remind you that he's the king, not you. You're gonna want to ask him to help you to choose his will over your will. And then there's this moment where Jesus is about ready to go to the cross and die on behalf of the sins of the world. And he prays this famous prayer in the garden. First, he's just like, I don't really want to do this, which, I mean, how many times have you prayed that to God? God, I don't want to do this. Can you just like figure out a different thing? And then he closes his prayer by saying, not my will, but yours be done. That is something a subject in a kingdom would bow down and say to their king. This is what I want. This is how I want things to go. This is what I would rather do. But I know you have a different perspective than me, and I defer to you. And so not my will, but yours be done. And it's not even just saying like, I mean, I guess you're just going to impose your will. It's saying, I willingly bow to your will over mine. And when you realize that this is an aspect of the relationship Jesus is looking to have with you, if you are a control freak like me and Herod, that realization is disturbing. Because here is the the metaphoric implication of the Magi's gift of gold to Jesus, that Jesus is ultimately in charge of everything I'm desperate to control. That's the symbolism here. Now, I know we don't use this language a lot in our culture, but you have a kingdom. 
Like metaphorically, you, you have a kingdom that you run. It's whatever area of your life that you assert control, that you insist on your will, that you are the one who gets the final say. That's your kingdom. And most of us become obsessed with building and furthering and supporting and insulating our own little kingdoms. And so the real question becomes, when your will clashes with God's, which will you bow to? In other words, is your priority being in control of your kingdom or building God's kingdom? Because you can really, when they're clashing and both of your will is fighting for a place on the throne, there really can only be one king. Like, I wonder, like, do you get annoyed or angry when God asks you to take something from your kingdom and leverage it to build his kingdom? What about when God asks you to do something that you don't want to do, but he tells you that he knows things that you don't know, and it's something that you need to do, that doing this thing will be good for you? What do you do in that moment where you feel sort of this internal prompting, right? Like this sort of uh, like otherworldly, and it's like not your thought, it's a different thought. It's coming from a different place that's like, you should forgive that person. And you're like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, you know what? You, you should, instead of holding on to that, using it for stuff, you should give that away. And you're like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't really, no. You should serve here. And you're like, no, I don't want to do that. I don't really, no thanks. You should, you should develop, begin developing this healthy habit. And you're like, no, I don't want to do that. And I, I think a lot of times because it's been sort of reduced to this really cute, adorable nativity scene, we, we oftentimes miss the abrasive implications of the Christmas story. And I think that's what some of these gifts bring into focus. The, the harsh truth I need to tell you is that you know, if you tell God, if a conversation you have with him is like, I'll serve you as long as you do what I want you to, or like, I'll do that for you if I get to have control of this, then God and Jesus, they are not your king. You are. You're the king of your own little world. And, and what this story is showing us is that there are really only two responses to Jesus' kingship in your life, Herod's and the Magi's. Now, I know you're thinking like, no, that's not true, because I feel like we could, you know, there's maybe a third option where we just reach a compromise. And this reveals that you really don't know about how ancient kings worked. Ancient kings not really famous for negotiating, for compromising with their subjects. Like, isn't this why we rejected a monarchy in our country is because we understand that not all kings are good. And so to give a king absolute power and authority is dangerous because it's a roll of the dice and we don't want to take on that risk, which brings up this question like, then why would we trust Jesus as king? And the real reason is because he's the only uncompromisingly good king worthy of unconditional trust. In other words, what this story is revealing and what the whole story of Jesus reveals is that Jesus is the anti-Herod. I think the boldest example of this is that Herod 
sacrifices his subjects on behalf of himself, and Jesus sacrifices himself on behalf of his subjects. In other words, Herod will make you do whatever he wants you to do to make things good for him. And Jesus willingly puts aside what's good for him in the moment to do what is good for you in the long haul. And when Jesus challenges you to do something, it's not because he needs you to do something for him. It's because he's like, listen, if you really want to live a full life, if you really want to have a sense of purpose and meaning, if you really want to get the most out of your existence, your relationships, do this thing. Trust me, I'm a good king. I'm looking out for you. And there's no way that we can look back at Jesus and say, I mean, I feel like I'm doing all the sacrificing. What are you going to sacrifice? Because Jesus is the kind of king that always goes first, never asking us to do anything he hasn't already done. He's an uncompromisingly good king worthy of unconditional trust. The story begins with the Magi sort of showing up and asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? And what I think is really interesting, if you study the book of Matthew, what you realize is that title is not used again in reference to Jesus until the very end of his book. And it's used four more times in rapid succession, and they're all inside of the story of his death. And this is insight into who Jesus is, the type of king that Jesus is. In reality, Unlike Herod, the true king of the Jews, at the climax of his life, he ascends a cross, not a throne. He doesn't lord over people. He lays his life down for his people. And then he does something really bold. He invites his followers to do the same thing for each other, to lay their lives down in service for each other, which is the last thing we want to do. So here's my question for you. What is the thing in, in your life that if it didn't go your way would cause you to question the goodness of God? Another way to say it would be this. In what areas of your life, physical, emotional, relational, financial, occupational, are you fighting God for control? Sometimes like in my own head, I picture it as like me and Jesus, and there's this area in my life, and there's the throne is right there, and I'm like elbowing him because I want to sit on it. Here's the crazy thing about it. God doesn't fight the way we fight. In fact, God will not fight you for the throne. He will let you have it. And that's dangerous. Because unfortunately, if you seize the throne of every area of your life, the, the, the one you're really cheating is not really God, it's you. Because you are fighting the one who is there to save you. Jesus will never force his kingship on you. <clears throat> That's not who he is. It's not the kind of king that he is. It's not the kind of kingdom he's building. He's simply going to love you and sacrifice for you and invite you into what he's doing and then wait for you to respond. There's so many examples of Jesus saying like, you know, hey, follow me. You know what that means? Hey, try this. 
Hey, what would it look like if you just like maybe got off the throne for just a minute and just sort of like tried an experiment with me calling the shots, me being in control, me being in charge of this aspect of your life you are so desperate to hang on to. What if just for a moment you let go and you let me be the king of that area? And you bowed and you said, not my will, but yours be done. What if you just tried that out? Jesus is so confident that it will make your life better and make you better at life that he just invites you into it instead of forcing you into it. And this really is the call of Christmas, is that Jesus is the king you ought to submit to. The question is, will you? Will you? And that's the question I want to pose to you. Will you honor King Jesus in every area of your life? When Jesus taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, we need to work on this, will you be delighted or will you be disturbed? I want to pray this into your life today that that you would learn to trust Jesus in a way you can't trust any other king, including yourself. Would you bow your heads across this room with me? God, I'm so grateful for your life, your birth, your love, your death, all the ways in which you show us a different way to live. God, we're grateful that we do not have to bow to sadistic, selfish, self-centered kings. A king who requires that everyone be sacrificed for his good, but a king who is willing to sacrifice himself for our good. And in fact, in these moments where he pulls us close and nudges us to do life his way, what he's trying to get us to see is that he is looking out for us long-term. God, I pray that in these little areas of our lives where there is this wrestling match above the throne of that area, whether it's relational or financial or emotional or occupational, whatever that thing is, that we would step aside and allow you to sit on the throne, that we would we would bow our will and defer to yours, and we would allow you to lead us forward into the life we were always meant to have. And God, may this be the key to our joy and peace and satisfaction in the midst of the Christmas season. May it be so. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, Help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening. And we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.